Hello, I'm Ray Reich, CEO of RevOps Squared and the host of the Metrics Measure Up podcast. We talk to a wide variety of B2B SaaS industry thought leaders, executives, and people just like you to discuss how they use metrics, key performance indicators, and benchmarks to enable better data-driven metrics-informed decisions that accelerate revenue performance and increase enterprise value. If you'd like to gain insights into how your metrics measure up to industry benchmarks, you can learn more at RevOpsquare.com. Now, on to today's show. Welcome to today's edition of the Metrics That Measure Up podcast. Today, I feel so privileged to be joined by a longtime friend, former business partner, and boss, John Younger, founder and chief collaborative recruiter share. Thanks, Ray. Great to be here. John, your metrics-driven approach to talent acquisition and actually more around hiring performance was what initially attracted me to become your partner and working with your organization got 10 years ago. Would you mind telling our audience a little bit about your journey and what led you to today's role at RecruiterShare? You bet. So I, in the vein of full disclosure, Ray, I am a recovering software developer, math and statistics geek. I got into recruiting after I wrote an, an applicant tracking system for Bank of America, and I got into recruiting technical people. And once I got into that, shortly thereafter, I managed all the recruiting for two divisions of Bank of America's hiring, about 16,000 employees. And it was dramatic to see how little we knew what was going on from a metric standpoint. It's a big organization, right, with lots of hires across lots of geographies and recruiters and managers. But even the simplest of metrics was like pulling teeth and almost impossible to keep on an ongoing basis. So through that journey, ultimately, uh, through having a software company, a recruitment process outsourcing company, I realized that at the end of the day, that managers really just want to make their hires easier and fast. And they want people who stay and are highly productive and highly valued. And ultimately, that's what started the thought behind recruiter share which is like ride sharing, but for the best uh, proven recruiters. You just mentioned, you know, making hires faster, making sure they're high value employees and that they stay. So would you share with our audience, first of all, what do you think are the highest priority metrics a hiring manager or a CFO and CEO should track? So I'm going to preface this comment, Ray, and you'll appreciate this with the, death by metrics possibility that many companies tend to run into. Meaning that I will share the top ones I think there are, but you read all the stuff about metrics for recruiting and hiring, and you can literally probably come up with 40 to 50 different metrics. And I'm sure you probably know that and have researched it. At the end of the day, I think it distills down to a very small number of metrics that the C-suite is going to really care about. The first one is going to be how long does it take between when the job goes live and I meet the person I'm going to hire? We call it days to present. And this is a really insightful dividing line between recruiting efficiency, so they come to my door in three days, for example, and interviewing and hiring efficiency, which could take a week, a month, several months. By knowing days to present, you can know where to focus your efforts to, for continuous improvement. The second one is what I would call net, well, it's net promoter, but it's targeted toward the recruiter and the recruiting business. Ask the people who are the hiring managers, 
are you likely, what is your likelihood of recommending this recruiter to others? And not just the whole process, but the recruiter himself or herself. Because at the end of the day, the HR department, the recruiting agency, all these bigger organizations around the recruiters are secondary to the recruiter you work with personally. So would you recommend this recruiter? And the third is some kind of a direct business impact metric. And I left it more generally defined because it depends on the role being filled. Is it a revenue per employee metric? And that especially if you have salespeople, how are they producing? Is it a customer feedback metric? Is it a retention metric, a retention and promotion metric? So those three things, days to present, a net promoter, and a business impact. That's really interesting. So net promoter, which is really your satisfaction with the recruiter that you use. Are there certain elements that make certain recruiters get a better NPS than others, John? Well, I think there are a few key things. The number one thing, and I think this is largely missed, Ray, is this idea of trust. If you trust your recruiter, and when I've seen this happen, it may not distill down to the fastest hire. But if I trust you as my recruiter, you become my proxy for vetting people. And frankly, you will likely find far better people for me if you know me and trust me. Many times people look at recruiters as disposable or as transitory. So, so I think the other thing about the, the net promoter is if I'm going to recommend you, I'm actually going to put my reputation on the line to other people I know and trust who have hiring needs. I won't do that for any recruiter. And a lot of recruiters are also, and the third piece is domain specific. So if I'm hiring a sales person versus hiring a senior developer, the kind of recruiter I need might be vastly different. And so that, that comes back to domain expertise. And I wanna know how many jobs of that nature the recruiter has filled and what their net promoter score was for all the managers they supported. You know, John, the, what's going through my mind and I couldn't get off of it over the last couple of minutes was 40% of B2B SaaS companies have reduced staff. 35% have reduced sales organization employees, 15% R&D, marketing, et cetera. But one of the metrics that you didn't talk about was the cost per hire. That, I find that interesting. Why is that? I think it's an important metric for the organization as a whole and the CFO. And ultimately, we all want to, to spend as little money as possible. But hiring the wrong person cheaper actually makes it the most expensive hire you will have ever made. And we'll talk about that in a little bit, I think, in terms of turnover, cost of a bad hire, that kind of thing. So if you think about the Maslow's hierarchy of needs as applied to recruiting, the first thing you have to do is get somebody who's gonna be a great hire. The next thing you have to do is keep them. And the next thing you have to do is do it as inexpensively as possible in that order. John, that's, that kind of reverses what I'm seeing going on in the industry right now, which is all about expense controls. And for those companies that are continuing to hire, they're trying to do it as cost effectively as possible. And I'm seeing a, a lot of recruiters out there who have been laid off over the last four or five months, contingency recruiters reducing their costs to fill up their capacity, so to speak. But Amy Volus and I were talking the other day on a podcast about the total cost of a bad hire. And I think it aligns with what you said. It might be better to pay more 
to get that best person who's going to be there for one, two, three, five years. So, John, what is the cost of a bad hire? And do you think that's a metric that should be measured? Yes, with a big asterisk. So the first thing I want to do is, is emphasize something a little differently, which is I'm not suggesting you need to pay more. I'm just uh, suggesting that you wouldn't necessarily have that as your number one priority about your recruiting solution. I actually think you should pay a lot less than you're paying today, quite frankly. And that's partly why we did recruiter share. The total cost is like five to 8% of the hire. I mean, it's a fraction, but we don't sell on cost. Getting back to the cost of a bad hire, measuring that, Ray, I love the idea of measuring it, but how? It's easy for you and I to say that in a statement, but now task somebody or a group of somebodies to measure that because it, it really speaks to how much time was spent onboarding and training, how much time was spent in the actual recruiting, whether it's a, a recruiter, an HR department allocation, or an outside recruiter or recruiting agency? What is the drain on productivity? How do you measure drain on productivity? How do you measure team morale and the stress that a bad hire can introduce in, in reducing team morale? What about diminished customer service? Yes, you can measure lost customers, but that's different than measuring a diminished customer relationship because of a, a bad interaction with someone who is a bad hire. So, when I think about the cost of a bad hire, there's a variety of metrics. It's usually somewhere around $15,000 or uh, some percentage of the total salary, or, or if you're a salesperson, the total uh, revenue they're supposed to generate. So there are quite a few calculations out there, but beyond that calculation, I think it's a metric that is extraordinarily difficult to actually measure. What do you think? I agree with you because when I talk about and something very simple, especially with my background, what's the cost of a bad sales hire? Right? So I've got a model, a calculator that shows what's the actual fully loaded recruiting cost. If you're using a recruiter, if you're using job postings, ATS, et cetera, you've got the actual training cost at enablement. You've got the ramp up time where they're at a lower percentage of quota. And typically in enterprise sales, it can take up to 12 months to get to full 100% quota. And by then, if the person's not working out and you need to replace them, you go through that, that entire cycle again. So you're gonna have 18 to 24 months of lost quota. And with the average enterprise quota being about $800,000 for B2B SaaS companies, we're talking exactly. about 1.6 million to $2 million of hard cost and lost opportunity. But, John, exactly. I'm finding less than 10% of my B2B SaaS companies even try to capture it because to your point, it's too hard. Well, and I think you've come up with a great rubric. And frankly, the key is, can you know that information within days or weeks of the hire rather than a year of the hire, right? Because the faster you move on something, then the more positive or to put it the other way, the less negative impact it will have on the organization if the bad hire doesn't stay with the company. Question is, when do you do that? And when do you know that? And I'm sure you do this. One of the things that, that uh, I've become, in part because of you and, the, and the, the insights that you've shared over the years we've worked together, is this idea of when the salesperson starts, they have to start producing fairly soon, even if it's at a relatively small level at some place in the closed pipeline, you know, in the sales pipeline. And don't wait until there's not a closed sale. If they don't, if you don't see the top of the funnel starting to matriculate in a way that is meaningful, move quickly. 
do it kind, do it with love and kindness, but don't delay. And that's one of the things that, that I took away is look further up the pipeline for salespeople in particular. And, you know, I'll move within weeks of cutting somebody loose. Um, not probably any fewer than like six weeks or eight weeks, but I'll move fairly quickly after that if they're not producing. Yeah, the piece of advice I always shared with my um, directors and managers were you will never regret moving too fast, but you will regret moving too slow. But John, I remember one of the things you used to say, which was we hire people for what they are, a great Java engineer, a great accountant, and then we fire them for who they are. So how do we go about- Exactly. How do we go about making sure that the who that we hire really fits into the culture and profile of our company? Do you have any advice for our listeners? You bet. In fact, I'm going to give you a special treat today, Ray. I'm going to give you a secret interviewing technique that when deployed will almost certainly cut to the quick of exactly the answer to this question literally in 15 minutes or less when you're interviewing someone, if you want to hear it. I'd love to. You hire for... for skills and you fire for fit is how I say that. Okay. So people will routinely, interviewers will re routinely talk about what people did in their jobs and they're interviewing candidate. What did you do then? What did you do here? And what we really want to get to is how they think in addition to what they've done. And so I have this little technique that I use and it is very easy to do. And I'll tell you what it means after I walk you through it. So basically what I do when I interview someone is I say, I'm gonna walk through a little process here. It will just take a few minutes. And what I wanna know, and I'll go, I don't care how many jobs you had in your career. I'll go back to college and I'll ask three simple questions. I'll tell the person this, I'm just, there's only three things I wanna know. How you found about, how you found the job, what you liked about the job before you started, before you had any institutional knowledge and why you left, just those three things. And I'll tell them right up front, don't get into what you did in the job. Other people, or we can do that another time. And so I want to go chronologically. So you graduated from college. I might even ask them how you picked, why you picked your college. How did you find your first job? So, and I'll give you a real life example, Ray. So one person I interviewed said, I found it through Craigslist ad. Okay. What did you like about it before you started? It was a great way to start my career and get it going. Why did you leave? Oh, the management was really awful. Okay, next job, how'd you find it? Job board, monster. What did you like about it before you started? A career move, why'd you leave? Manager. Next job, how'd you find it? Career builder. What'd you like? Career development, why'd you leave? Management issues. And by this point, Ray, this person looked up at me and said, it sounds like I have issues with management, doesn't it? I said, <laughs> it sure does, let's talk about that. Literally, it took less than three minutes to get to this point. And it became very clear with just a few more questions that this person took zero responsibility for the success of the team or company. And when things got tough, this person bolted. I knew four minutes into this interview, this is not someone we were gonna hire because they wouldn't fit. We need people with way more grit than that in our company. Let me step back a minute. One last thing here real quick. What does that tell you? So how did you find out about the job? Why is that an important question? Because if somebody's, well, one is you're going to find jobs that aren't on the resume if you do it sequentially. Um, but the more important thing is the people who are the top performers, Ray, almost always get pulled into an, a future job by someone they worked with previously. So 
So if they've worked three or four or five jobs and they have not been pulled in by someone they worked in previously, worked with previously, that's a flag for me. It doesn't mean I won't hire them, but that's a, a mark of, a, of a, an A player is people who work with them want to pull them forward. What did you like about the job before you started? Gives you a little insight into how thoughtful they are in their decision-making process. The people that we like to hire and who fit well are thoughtful. Well, I researched on the web, I saw you did this, I saw your press release. The people that are less interesting are the ones that say, oh, I just wanna you know, develop myself, looking for a better opportunity. Well, that's, that's pretty thin. That doesn't show much thoughtfulness. And then why did you leave is a, a really beautiful question because oftentimes people will say, oh no, there was a better opportunity in another company. And you'll laugh, Ray, but I'll even say right then, no, you didn't. I'm like, what do you mean? So you didn't leave because it was a better opportunity. That's like saying I got divorced because I saw a prettier person. <laughs> you left because something you needed was not being fulfilled. What was not being fulfilled? And then stop talking. And they will unload on why they actually left. And it will give you insights into the exact question you seek to have answered, which is will they fit? John, you said something there about getting pulled in. And I agree the best A players typically are going to be brought in by that new VP that you just hired or new director. But what's interesting, and I haven't seen these metrics for a while now, less than like 30% of hires are from internal employee referrals. And that, that just doesn't, I don't understand that. If the best hires come from people you worked with before, why it's such a small amount? Any insights into that? Well, I think the number one reason is that the art of employee referral programs is lost for a lot of people and a lot of companies. If you think about what constitutes and what yields a highly productive internal referral program, statistically speaking, it is a theme-based, time-bound, highly promoted internally program. And I'm a big fan of every other quarter, for example, if a company is hiring. In fact, we even have a, a guide, an employee referral program guide. I'm happy to share with anybody who reaches out to me uh, at no cost or anything like that, just to share it. But themes about Star Wars or themes about Tesla or themes about whatever, those kinds of programs are essentially internally focused marketing campaigns. When's the last time you heard of a company doing something like that? That's really interesting, John. Let me ask a question for our listeners. If you were to just pull it out of the air to say, your goal, Mrs. CEO or Mr. C CFO, should be to hire X percent of your employees next year from employee referrals, what would be that percentage that you'd say? Well, it depends on the stage of the company. If it's a, an earlier stage company with, say, 10 employees or less, I would say nearly all of them. If it's a company that's you know 50 to 200 I would say that's probably more like 20 to 30% of them. If it's a larger company, I would shoot for 15 or so, 15 to 20%. And again, if you do these programs as even the largest companies, you will see a degree of high quality employee referrals and corresponding hires be dramatically higher than what it was prior to the campaign. Those are great benchmarks. Thank you so much for sharing that, John. I wanna move on to another topic and since I started the podcast, we've talked a lot about the impact of COVID-19, the impact on 
um, B2B SaaS metrics like growth rates and customer acquisition. I don't want to bore the listeners with that again, but I just heard a couple days ago that the number of open jobs in the United States increased by 600,000 from 6 million to 6.6 million open jobs. Let me ask you, what have you seen over the last one or two months? Do you see hiring coming back? Well, it is in fits and starts. I also think that's a, a wildly misleading metric. And the reason I believe that is, you probably know this, between July 2019 and April 2020, there was a 68% job drop in jobs in leisure and hospitality, 68%. That's an army of people who do everything from servers and restaurants to cooks and dishwashers and, and concierge, I mean, everything in the food service industry, right? And then hotels, et cetera. So I think the spike we're seeing is in part because some of the restaurants and hotels and other organizations that are in hospitality are coming back online. I also think that it's in very specific industries. If you're in healthcare, you're probably booming. If you're in other areas, you're probably not. Um, you know, look at Amazon. Amazon can't hire enough drivers. Why? Because we're all at home and we're getting our packages delivered four times a day, right? And I'm getting my shopping from Whole Foods, but somebody's delivering it. So I don't think we can look at apples and apples when you look at that 6.6 .6 million open job number. I think that it really is acquiring a little more thoughtful insight what's behind that. Now, that makes total sense. If you're opening a city back up or a region of the country and you need to hire new restaurant employees or um, laborers, you're exactly right. I hadn't thought about it like that. How about in the technology industry? You know, we've had these shining stars like the Zooms, et cetera, but we've also had a lot of the smaller startups be impacted. Have you seen technology companies starting to accelerate hiring again, John? Well, um, you know the game musical chairs, right, Ray? I, I do. I haven't so, played it for a few years, though. Yes. So, so well, we're playing it right now with these jobs numbers. So it used to be that if you wanted to work for a San Francisco-based technology company, you had to relocate to San Francisco. And so I relocated. I'm going to stay with this company. I may or may not love my work, but it pays well, and it's, it's here. Well, now those same companies, same companies, just like many other companies are saying, well, you can work from anywhere. So maybe take the inverse of that. Maybe I really wanted to work for LinkedIn in downtown San Francisco. But Ray, I live in Ohio. I live in Columbus. I, I just don't want to relocate my family to crazy California. Well, what's different now is that I can now be hired by LinkedIn and not have to move. This whole work from home ethos has transformed employment. So if I don't like where I am, I no longer have to look within the, the jobs community within Albuquerque, New Mexico, where I live. I can now work for any company across the United States. That dramatically changes the draw I have to a company. Now, if I love the company, great, I'll move and I'll still work for this given company. But if I'm not real happy, you know what, I'm just going to leave because I no longer have to relocate my family to now consider a much broader swath of companies across the United States with whom I might work. Well, that's going to create a whole influx of vacancies. 
You know, what's interesting, I, I've never thought about this until right now, John. So it does give the employee a much broader choice of companies they can work for because they can work from home. But I thought about the other side, talent acquisition. Everyone says, well, great. Now Facebook or LinkedIn can hire people much easier without them having to be in San Francisco or New York. But recruiting actually is going to get harder, isn't it? Because if you're trying to hire someone from anywhere, how does a recruiter know the Ohio marketplace as well as the Austin marketplace as well as the Seattle marketplace? That's got to be hard, right? Yeah, it gets even yeah, it gets even more complicated than that because most of the recruiting infrastructure is location based. If you want to put a job on Indeed or LinkedIn, you got to say where the job is. Now, some of them are starting to move toward this work from home paradigm, but a lot of them don't have that. You have to designate a location to your point and the recruiters don't have access to those markets in a way that they're used to and that's why things like well like recruiter share there's lots of other things that are that are opening that up to say statistically market it to where there is the highest probability or concentration of people who might be a fit for that job right and it used to be 25 of the major metropolitan areas, but now that's dispersing very quickly. Um, so I guess the short answer, Ray, is get the job promoted far more broadly and deeply than it used to be. And that's not necessarily an easy thing to do. Yeah, I'm just thinking there might be those people who are right now leaving San Francisco and we read all about it, right? And that person who says, oh, I want to go to a lake in Idaho and I'm going to live on a lake. I've always wanted to live in a lake. Well, if the job that they lost or they, or they want to leave was in San Francisco, my big question is, how does that recruiter in San Francisco know there's people in Idaho when they're going to promote it? Because Idaho is not in the top 25 metropolitan area. I just, I never thought about this before. It seems like it's going to change the opportunity for job advertisement platforms. Well, it's certainly going to be a modification to them for sure. So, I think the recruiter has to tap into those outreach mechanisms that are more inclusive. And we're seeing the same thing in Europe. Uh, recruiter share is now growing in Europe and we have a company that is hiring in France, but not in Macron where, where the job, where the headquarters is, it's anywhere in France, in this case, Northern France. Well, to your point, how would you possibly know what's a little, city in northern France to, to shoot for. So you have to uh, be clever and be able to promote jobs in multiple locations simultaneously with a work from home thread throughout it. And I'll give you an example, Ray. Uh, Craigslist is a great example. Um, and I'm just using this because it's, it's so almost neighborhood specific. When you advertise on Craigslist, you have to choose the specific area. It will not let you put a job out there unless it's in the specific area. So how do you do that? Well, you have to rotate it around. You have to rotate it around to multiple geographies, again, with, an, with the underlying truth of where the highest percentage of possible, possible candidates. And to your point, the lake in Northern Idaho probably will never get that job. But if the person is smart, they're gonna go to some of the broader um, places if they really want a different job and they'll search for work from home. And that will yield those jobs that are more uh, aligned with where their work and their life are situated at that point in time. 
Got you. Makes sense. I, I had a couple other questions I wanted to ask you, but I want to follow this trend a little bit more. So now let's say you've reduced the size of your internal talent acquisition team. And you know that you want to look for, hell, let's use developers. And you're like, okay, I think there's going to be good developers in the Boston area, in the Austin area, in Chicago, New York, LA, and San Francisco. I'm just picking five cities. How do you go about identifying a recruiter that has a Rolodex or a network of people in those five cities? That seems it's going to be very difficult in today's new world. Well, I think the modern recruiter, quite frankly, is, is a different animal. You know, the old school is, you know, I've got these 30 developers. I have good relationships with them. I know them. They know me. And you come to me because I know them. And I think the modern recruiter might still have a small pocket of people in that way, but they tend to be more resourceful. And this is where, for example, the recruiters underneath RecruiterShare have this platform that does that work for them because most recruiters don't have the technology, don't want to spend the money, don't have the uh, access to all those different cities. So you're talking about five cities that if you're promoting jobs in all five cities, or looking for candidates in all five cities, that's gonna be a really, it could be a very expensive time consuming process, right? Which is your point. They need some way to, to promote the job in all five simultaneously in a way that AI and some other things can do it for them and ultimately yield a higher probability of the kind of candidates that will be a fit. And, and again, this goes back where the human part comes in, which you haven't touched on, which is if I find someone, how will I know they're a fit not just by skill, but by personality. And that goes back to the trust with the manager and the, and the fact that recruiting is still inherently human. Well, let's talk a little bit about that. So some companies have eliminated or reduced their internal talent acquisition team. We're 12 months out and it's like, oh, we need to hire 200 people. And I'm not just gonna go out and hire you know, 10 recruiters. I'm going to go try to identify those domain experts, maybe location-based, but to your point, maybe more subject matter and domain experts. John, are there benchmarks or KPIs that when you're re recruiting recruiters or evaluating recruiters, you should look at? Like, what, what should you, you be bet. asking a recruiter? Yep, great, great question. The first thing, and this is going to sound obvious, but it's oftentimes missed when people evaluate recruiters. I like a four year window because that's long enough to be inclusive, but not so long that it's stale. I want to know exactly by title, how many people you've placed in that role and in that geography. It's a simple question, but it's a metric. Okay. So I'm looking for software developers and, and if it's work from home, obviously the geography is less important, but if you say you're looking for a software developer and they can work from home, and I asked the recruiter, exactly, give me a list. I don't want just your off the cuff, off the hip, you know, guess of every job by title you filled and how many people you've placed in the last four years. There's number one. Uh, I had one recruiter, by the way, when I asked that question and he gave me these generalities. Oh, many people, many people. Yeah, how many? Oh, quite a few. I get that. I need a number. And I said, and, and I want something that's verifiable so I can go and talk to the actual hiring managers. And when I kept pushing, what I found, Ray, is this person in the last year had made zero hires 
and had never hired anybody that I was looking for. So keep in mind that recruiters aren't necessarily going to be forthcoming if they're not a fit. If they are a fit, they're usually pretty forthcoming. The second thing that I would look for, most recruiters don't know this, but I still ask, which is that days to present. So you engage with me to fill my technical roles. What is your average days to present the person who will be hired? And again, I, I ask for as much information as I can, but that's one that tells me, are they people who are more laid back and kind of easygoing or are they hard drivers? And I like the hard drivers. And the third metric that I ask the recruiters and they oftentimes don't know, but you can check on LinkedIn, they, you know, give me the last five or 10 people you actually placed into technical roles by name and company. And then literally, Ray, I will go to LinkedIn and see if they're still there. Because that'll give me a retention metric, even if the recruiter doesn't know it. Wow. So you're asking about retention. Dan, and when we um, first started today's podcast, you talked about that net promoter score, which I guess is kind of hiring manager satisfaction. Do you ask that? And if not, how do you get that? Well, I, I don't typically ask it only because after asking it so many times, they don't know it. And every recruiter will say they're a 10 out of 10. And then when you ask for the surveys, they don't actually survey anybody. So uh, the only way I could think of to get it was to build it into a model. And that way, it, it's, it's a question that's systematically asked every time a hire is made, and it's no longer a guesswork. Yeah, and that kind of brings up another concept, because with the RevOps squared um, KPI benchmarking index, you know, we go out to thousands of SaaS companies and we collect these standard benchmarks, things like the customer acquisition cost ratio, gross dollar retention, net dollar retention, customer lifetime to CAC ratio. But we haven't yet kind of entered that hiring analytics or hiring KPIs. John, are there anywhere out there by role, by geography, where you can find things like days to present or hiring management satisfaction scores that a SaaS company could go and benchmark their own internal recruiters against? Most, most platforms don't track that data, Ray. And they certainly, if they do, they don't track it across multiple companies, usually because they don't know. You know, LinkedIn doesn't know who got hired, when, and from what source. I mean, we have that data within the platform underneath Recruiter Share. I'm happy to share that with you if that's helpful to you and to potentially the companies you work with. And uh, maybe that's at least a starting point. Well, that's a very generous offer. And I, I guess I would encourage all my listeners, if you're looking at a data-driven metrics-informed decision-making process and talent acquisition is one of those areas that you think you can improve operational efficiency, hire better people, maybe at reduced costs, please reach out to John Younger at Recruiter Share. Thank you, John, for offering that. So, well, I'm going to wrap up today with kind of an open-ended question, John. And once again, 30 years of experience, lots of successful startups that you've, you've founded, you've sold. If you were talking to, I'm going to give you two personas, to a CFO or CEO today who says, I want to make this next version of my talent acquisition function much more effective and efficient than before, what's your words of wisdom to that executive First of all, first and foremost, be clear about who you need to hire when to the extent that you can anticipate and articulate that. Because at the end of the day, one of the biggest gaps I see with the CFOs and CEOs is they, they tend to be reactive and not thoughtful in their annual or, you know, rolling 12 month hiring. 
Now, we all know it's going to change. We all know it's not going to be accurate. But the first thing is figure that out. The next thing I would highly recommend you do is determine based on that volume or lack of volume what kind of budget you want to carve out for that. One of the biggest mistakes I've seen, Ray, is where the senior level executives say, well, we're just going to hire a recruiter. And they're going to pay $110,000 a year for that recruiter, recruiting manager. They don't think about that as that's $110,000. Okay. And then you have the overhead on top of that, of course, the 25, 30% overhead. And then the first thing that person does is engage four recruiting agencies who charge 20% each. Next thing you know, they're $600,000 in the recruiting fees. And then they stop and go, wait a minute. That's not what our budget is. That's not what we have. So, Anticipate the hiring need for rolling 12 months. Think about the volume. Having someone on staff is probably a good idea depending on your hiring volume, but also considering the, consider the variable cost of other options. One of the things you haven't asked about, Ray, was the, the cost of a bad recruiting hire um, internally or externally. You get contract recruiter, full-time recruiter, frankly, even a recruiting agency that burns up a bunch of time. That can also be enormous. So, uh, one, 12 month, rolling 12 month, two, the, the budget, three, having at least one point person, and four, having some variable component. Recruiting is always ebbing and flowing. And that's frankly where, you know, whether it's recruiter share or something else, have something that gives you the elasticity and ideally for something for a very low cost, because then you kind of get the best of both worlds. You get the, the recruiters you love, but you only get them when you need them and you get them at a very low cost, whatever can solve that problem. That's interesting, John, because I was talking to um, Sahil Manturi, who's the founder of Bravado. It's a network of 70,000 B2B sales professionals. And he is advocating for 100% base salary and eliminating the 50-50 base salary and variable comp. But what I heard you just say was maybe look at a mix of compensation for either in-house or external recruiters, part which is kind of a retainer or salary in part, which is a fee upon hire. Is that what you're recommending? Yeah, either a salary or some commitment when the job goes live. Because the idea of 100% contingency, and this is a bias, but a lot of the contingency firms aren't willing to expend any real dollars to fill your job because they get nothing. And 80% of the time, they never fill the job. So to your point, having 100% Fixed cost doesn't allow you to have that elasticity. Having 100% variable cost and contingency doesn't get you the commitment. So to your point, somewhere in the middle is the sweet spot. Interesting. And my last question, and every executive, every manager that listens to this is also sometimes a candidate. And we also have a lot of individual contributors who are listening to the Metrics That Major at podcast. John, any advice or recommendations you can make to everyone listening today on how to ensure they're a better candidate, whether it's their LinkedIn profile, how they interview, advice to our listeners who are also candidates? You bet. There are a couple of key things if you are or are planning to be or not planning to be a candidate. The first thing is to ground your LinkedIn profile and resume in quantifiable information. One of the things that we've seen, and I've seen you know, tens of thousands of resumes and candidates, is people use a lot of adjectives and everybody, just to put a fine point on it, Ray, everybody I've ever fired 
had a resume that said they were the best, right? I'm sorry, you mean you don't see people <laughs> with LinkedIn profiles say, I was pretty average. Yeah, I was pretty average. <laughs> um, so, so rather than, you know, take all the adjectives and remove them from your resume and your LinkedIn profile and get down to the core truth of what you've done in as quantitative a way as possible. So you hired this many people, you fired this many people, you managed this many projects of this size, you, you generated this many uh, new accounts that yielded th this amount of revenue. You know, that kind of thing weirdly stands out as somebody, in other words, right in your sweet spot, right in your wheelhouse, Ray, use the metrics. Use the actual metrics. The next thing is to be surgical. And I have a whole, another whole podcast potentially later is this whole diamond method that I've come up with to find a job where you start and you expand your universe by giving and sharing before you get to the midpoint of the diamond when you start selecting and ultimately get a job and, and ask, selecting and asking. One of the biggest mistakes I see people who are looking for work do is continually ask for something without giving anything, which comes across as both selfish and potentially desperate. And that's always, almost always going to work against you. And the people that tend to get hired are the ones that, again, do the informational interviews, not to get hired, but just to learn. And they give people a gift of knowledge, maybe a white paper, that kind of thing. So think about your effort to launch and manage a campaign for your next job as a diamond, not as a straight arrow. That does sound like a very interesting topic for another podcast. I tell you, John, I knew I was going to have this challenge when I invited you to be one of our guests. I could talk to you for two hours about this stuff, but um, we're going to have to wrap it up. So I'm going to leave it with one open-ended um, question. And that is any other advice or insights you'd like to provide to our listeners? Well, just that now more than ever with the work from home, hire only the best possible person. That doesn't mean delay your hire. It doesn't mean pass on your great hire because maybe there's a better one. When you see somebody who's great, hire them. But don't settle for a B player in your roles. Just don't do it. That's my advice. And when you get good at that, you're going to find that a small number of people can move mountains you'll save a bundle in, in costs on many things, not just the recruiting costs, but the staff costs. And you can pay your people more. And frankly, you can produce at a much higher level. So that's it. John, that's great advice. And I think it's something that you and Reed Hastings from Netflix really share, right? It's like find those A players and overpay the hell out of them, right? Because they are going to deliver right. much more Take than a BOC player. Thank you so much for joining this edition of the Metrics of Major Up podcast. And hopefully we can have you return again soon. I appreciate it. And it's been my pleasure, Ray. Thank you.